The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. How are you this morning? Good. What a great week of football. Right? All right. All right. All right. You know, I had all kinds of stuff I wanted to say to Jared Clary, who hung an OU banner on our office, and he pulled a low, dirty trick this morning when he came in and faced the music. He had his sweet son next to him. And Micah looked at me with these big eyes going, hey, Pastor Tracy. And I'm like, hey, good game, guys. Have a nice day. That's all I could get out. But no, it was a great time. Bulldogs won. And, and if that makes you happy, then I'm glad you're happy because there's got a lot of Bulldogs and Tigers won. But, you know, we're here to talk about Jesus. And, you know, and that's what we're here to do. And we're going to continue our study back into 1 Corinthians. And as we come to 1 Corinthians, we're coming to chapter 9. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to try to cover the whole chapter this morning. And uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, but when you see what we're, what we're dealing with, what Paul is doing in this text is he's having to justify himself, of all things. He's having to justify his authority as an apostle, with a capital A, one who has been directly commissioned. This is what a, a, a full capital A apostle means. It means one who was directly commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. And those are the, the guys who Jesus chose and said, now you go and take my message and be the foundation, that gospel message, be the foundation of the church. And so Paul did that. As you know, we've studied in Corinthians. He, he went into Corinth, which was, we kind of compared it to like the ugly side, the underbelly of New Orleans, a very rough and tough town with a lot of crazy, sinful stuff going on. He was tired. He was broken. He says he went in. He needed a, a break, but he went in with, with weakness and fear and trembling, and he just said, I'm just going to do nothing but proclaim Christ and him crucified, and God worked powerfully. People got saved, and signs and wonders and miracles were done validating that he is an apostle, a messenger sent by the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, and people's lives were transformed, and they gathered together to study God's word, and, and then he moved on to the next town, and then word was sent to him through Chloe and her people. She ratted them out and said, there's some things going on in the church, and so in that letter, we've been learning through Paul's return letter to them, which is First and Second Corinthians, that what was going on. And what, we don't have the original letter, but we can tell what was going on. And what we see today is a lot of them were saying, he's not even a real apostle. You know, it happens when someone doesn't like your message. All of a sudden, they try to discredit you and say, you know, he's not really an apostle. And, and one of the things we're going to see is today, why were they saying he was an apostle? And it leads me to ask this question, which is what they were doing to him. If I were not paid by the church, if I were not full-time minister of the church, if I, if I was a bivocational or, or had a full-time employment that paid for my, uh, covered my own expenses that I didn't take a salary from the church, and I came to your home and challenged you on something and said, hey, uh, you know, this is an area of life I think you need to really think about and encourage you to repent of that sin, would you view me the same as an unpaid guy as, I, as you do knowing I'm a full-time paid pastor. That's what's going on in our text. And, and to kind of continue the analogy with our church, our bylaws have wisely stated um, that we want to have a goal of at least half of our, of our elders or pastors. Those terms are synonymous in our tradition. Elders are pastors. We have six of them, six pastors, and we have the goal of, of half of them not being paid by the church. 
Now, the reason is so that it would maintain consistency of direction of the church if the full-time guys were called out, which is more likely to happen than the non-paid guys. And so, but think about it. Do you view the non-paid pastors the same as you do the paid pastors? Do you afford them the same authority? Do you afford Claude Bundrick the same authority that you do me? He does it for free. I get paid. Does that make me any more official or have any more authority than him? No, it doesn't. But I think if we're honest, we all tend to think there's the real pastors and then there's the non-real pastors. They have more authority. Why? Because they get paid? That's exactly what we see going on in the text today. They're questioning Paul's authority. He's having to justify himself. And one of the reasons we're going to see is because he chose not to get paid for his services, his labor of the gospel ministry. Look at verse 1. He's defending himself and he says this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He has 15, I think if I counted right, 15 rhetorical questions in this text. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, yes, yes. Are not you yourselves my workmanship in the Lord? Are you not the evidence that God is working through me as an apostle? Verse 2, if to the others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you're the very seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are exhibit A that I'm an apostle. And you're questioning me as to whether I'm really an apostle or not. So Paul's authority is being questioned. And Paul is saying, let me respond to this right up front. I am an apostle with a capital A. On the road to Damascus, we see Jesus, the resurrected Lord and Savior, appeared to him and said, you will be on mission for me to the Gentiles. But they're questioning it. And on two grounds, we see at least two grounds of why they are questioning his authority. First of all, as we've already said, because he wasn't paid. In 2 Corinthians, we're in 1 Corinthians, but in the next book, 2 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. Chapter 12, verse 11 through 13, we see that this was a part of, of their, uh, the problem. He's justifying himself saying, I, I wasn't paid, but this shouldn't be a problem. Verse 11, he said, I've been a fool and you've forced me to it for I ought to have been commended by you. You should be saying thanks for not charging you. I ought to be commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these so-called super apostles, even though I'm nothing. And Paul does this a lot back and forth. I'm not nothing. I'm not less than these apostles, but I'm not, I am nothing. I'm not anything special, but I'm just saying I'm an apostle just like those guys are apostles. He says, so, so, uh, ought to have me for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. God worked powerfully in Corinth, validating this is really the work of God through Paul. He says, for in what were you less favored than the rest of these churches? Except that I myself was not a burden to you. The only thing you didn't have that these other apostles did for their churches was you didn't have to pay me. Well, forgive me for this wrong, he says to them. I think I, my version of Paul has quite a bit of sarcasm when you read his letters. He's like, forgive me for not charging you. 
And now you're turning this into a reason why you say, I'm not a full-fledged apostle. Y'all following the logic of the argument, that seems to be what's going on. That's the first grounds that they're saying, you're not a legit apostle. The second ground seems to be about his lifestyle and the way he acted. They're probably saying, you aren't even paid and you're a big fat hypocrite. Well, what am I talking about? Well, throughout the letters, you see this idea of food sacrificed idols, food in the marketplace, and who should eat and who shouldn't eat. And Paul seemed to be playing both sides. When he was with the Jews, he ate what we call kosher food only. When he was with the Gentiles, he ate pork and loved it. And they're like, wait a minute. You're a hypocrite. I knew you weren't a legit apostle. I don't like what you're saying to us, so why don't you just move on? And so they didn't like what he was doing. And so Paul's going to, in this chapter, address both of those issues. Number one, why he didn't get paid. And number two, why he lived differently around different people. And here's the one point, the main idea. I don't want you to lose the heart of Paul as we think very heady about what's going on. Here's the heart. Paul says, let me tell you why I did that. I did that because I love seeing people be one to Christ. I did that for the sake of the gospel. I did that because that is my priority and that is my love and my greatest reward. It's not the salary. It's not to be free to eat whatever I want to eat. My greatest reward is to see people one to Christ. That's the main point. And so as Paul justifies, defends his authority as apostle, he serves for us an example. An example of as we turn the page on 2019 to 2020 and we hit the season where it says, hey, let's let's make a clean start. What is 2020 going to look like? What am I going to be resolved to do next year to make it an even better year? This is a great text for us. And so we're going to consider Paul's example we're going to look at, at Paul's rights that he's going to talk about. And then we're going to look at Paul's reward. What drove Paul? What was his reward? And then we're going to look at, at how Paul chose at the end. Uh, what is the last R? <laughs> Paul's rights, Paul's reward. And he uses an analogy, Paul's race. An analogy of running a race. And we're going to convert that into New Year's resolutions. And I hope you've got a pen and a paper And I'm not a huge resolution guy, but I'm learning the older I get, the value of it, if you use them effectively. I want you to find a pen and paper by the end of the service, and I want you to write down these three categories I'm going to give you from these verses that say, I want to go home and write some specific, practical steps that I can take, resolutions I can make that will help me, for the sake of the gospel, run the race for the sake of the gospel. Father God, we ask for your help this morning. As we look at Paul's rights, his rewards, and this race that he runs, would you challenge us? Would you work powerfully in our hearts by your Spirit? I pray that the Spirit of God will will convict us where we need to repent and, and change us, and that it'll be a work of your grace that has captured our heart. May we be so consumed with the truths of the words that we were singing that Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. That it would would capture our hearts. And that we would 
live differently next year for the sake of the gospel, that we might see people one to Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we begin looking at Paul's rights. In verse 3 to 18, he begins clarifying all of his rights as an apostle. It's a strange argument. They're like, you're not a true apostle. Oh, he says, oh, I'm an apostle. Let me tell you of the rights I had as an apostle. Verse three, this is my defense to those who would examine me, Paul says. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? You're saying I don't have a right to not take payment as an apostle? And then he asks these rhetorical questions. They continue. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who does that? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? He looks at the farmers. Any of you guys do that? Any of you plant and don't eat of your own fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? That's not how it works. In other words, I'm an apostle. I absolutely deserved and had every right to demand you to pay me full wages as a full legitimate prophet or apostle. And he doesn't just argue from tradition or customary practices of the day. He goes to the scriptures and says, and it's even, I was absolutely right to ask for money according to the word of God. Look at verse 8. He says, do I say these things from human authority? No. Does not the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses. And he quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out grain. Is it for the ox that God is concerned? No. Does he not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. I absolutely had every right to demand that you pay me for my ministry as an apostle, Paul says. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things? You see the priority. Spiritual things, if I'm pouring out spiritual blessing to you, surely I deserve to be paid some wages. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim of you, do not we even more as legitimate apostles. So what is Paul doing here? The first thing Paul is doing is saying, you are wrong in thinking that the fact that I didn't get paid is because I wasn't a legitimate apostle. He's saying, I had every right. He's laying out there all the rights that he had as a full-fledged capital A commissioned by the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as an apostle to the Gentiles to say, you owed me payment for my service. Don't use that as an excuse to say, I don't have to listen to what you say, Paul. Well, then the question is obvious. Well, then why in the world didn't he take the pay? Why did Paul say, I don't want to get paid? That's what he answers, continuing in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right to get paid. Instead, we endure, here's why. Why didn't Paul get paid? We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In Paul's context, he said, it would be an obstacle 
It would be a problem. It would hinder the advancement of the gospel if I got paid. And it's not worth it to me. The gospel advancing people come and know Christ, Paul says, is way more important to me than getting a paycheck. Wow. Then he goes back into his argument, 13, he's kind of all over the place. He says, do you not know that those who are employed at the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrifice, sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel, period. End of discussion. I say we stop the sermon there and talk about how much we get paid, right? I don't want to talk about the next part where he says, but I chose not to get paid. So, as, arg- as passionately as Paul argued that he deserved to get paid, to make the point that I'm a legitimate apostle, he now more passionately argues for his right to say, but don't pay me. I don't want to get paid for this. Look at verse 15. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Not the right to get married. Not the right to, to eat this and eat that. I, did, I made use, not the right to get paid. Why? Nor am I writing you to ask for payment. I'm not writing you to say, to secure such provisions. I'm not saying, okay, well, you didn't pay me. You owe me back pay. He says, why? For I would rather die than to have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. This is the back and forth part that gets a little confusing. And that's how Paul writes a lot of times. He's like, man, that would take my grounds to boasting. I'm not saying I've got grounds to boast, but I'm just saying you would take that away from me. And I really am thankful that I'm able to preach the gospel and not have to worry about the money. For necessity is laid upon me. I am constrained to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship of the gospel. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, here's my reward. Here's my joy. Here's why I didn't take the money. Here's what's most important to me. And in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full of my use, my right in the gospel, so that some might be saved. What Paul is saying to a church that is Think about what this situation, think about what a godly man this is. Here's a church who God has used Paul powerfully to proclaim the gospel. They were saved, their lives are being transformed, experiencing the blessings of God through his labor, through his ministry, through his sacrifice. And he's so committed to it that because of the context, he said, you know, I don't want to get paid because it's just going to cause a problem. We're going to see why in just a minute. He's going, but to those people, he's been pouring out blood, sweat, and tears. And they're like, you're not even a real apostle because you didn't take money. And he says, I didn't take money because I, my pay is seeing people come to know Christ. 
in 1 Thessalonians 2, 5, we see what was going on in the context of their day, why maybe he chose not to take money. He says, for we, we came, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Hear that? We didn't come with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. You see, what was likely going on in that day was there was a lot of traveling philosophers and philosophy and religion were very much of the same category. And they would travel around with high words and rhetoric of the Greek people and they would, they would demand payment for their enlightened expressions to the people. And Paul was disgusted by this, by their greed, their self-serving attitudes. They weren't going to bless these people. They're going to serve themselves and bless themselves off the backs of these people. And Paul says, never. That is not what I'm doing. I want to see people one to Christ. And if that means not getting paid and working as a tent maker, which Paul did, and putting in a full day's work, and then after he comes home tired, going and laboring for people who didn't understand, he's just fragile and weak and tired and giving all he had to proclaim the gospel so that if anyone got saved, it wasn't his power, it was the power of God using his weakness. And Paul says, that's why I did this. That's, that's why. I had all these rights, but I didn't, I didn't cash in on my rights because it was more important for me to see people come to know Christ than for me to pad my bank account. What a godly man. What, what priorities he had. And it's extraordinarily convicting. Am I that kind of man? Are you that kind of man or woman? As we turn the page on 2019 and start to look for what 2020 will be, this is the question that we should be asking. What has captivated our heart? What is our priority? How important is the testimony of the gospel to you? How far backwards are you willing to bend for the sake of seeing someone come to know Christ? Keep that in mind as we turn to Paul's reward. Paul's sacrifice, why, Paul's rights. Why was he willing to sacrifice his rights? Because he was driven by this reward. He mentioned reward in the previous verses. In 19 through 23, he starts to elaborate what his reward is. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why would you do that? Why would you say I'm a servant to all? I've got to worry about what the Jews think. I've got to worry about what the Gentiles think. I'm not going to take money. That costs a lot. Do you know the dent that's going to make on his retirement plan? Why would he do that? That's not smart, Paul. We don't teach our kids to do that. Why would you do that? He says, that I might win more of them. There's his reward. His reward is that maybe doing this will lead more people to come to know Christ. 
how many of us are willing to teach our kids that it is more wonderful to be used by God to lead someone to come to know Christ than it is to have this great little career path that we've, that we've set before you? Do we tell them that is success? Because that's what Paul example, exemplifies for us. In our retirement planning, can we say, let's plan for your purpose in life. I praise God for some of these med students. I've had some of them say to me, many of them have said to me, I want to go to med school and I want to get to the point as soon as I can where I don't have to worry about money and I can be medical missionaries the rest of my life. And we have Maggie Hickson doing it right now. They're not just giving lip service because when you hear that for that young idealistic person, you go, yeah, sure, you'll change. You'll get greedy later, trust me. But this explains every bit of Paul's life. Why he did what he did was explained by his reward. I want to see people come to know Christ. It's why he ate here and didn't eat there. Look at verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. The Jews lived under the law at this time, and they, we would call it kosher, that they would live a certain way, eat certain diets that were prescribed in the Old Testament law. Paul knew that that was no longer applicable because Christ had fulfilled the law. Paul was free to eat whatever he wanted to eat and not worry about these restrictions that were a burden, that were difficult. And Paul says, but I'm going to refrain when I'm around the Jews because I don't want to offend them. Why don't you want to offend them? Because I'm hoping to reach them for Christ. Because that's my reward. It's more important to Paul to reach them for Christ than it is to express his freedoms in Christ. And the same thing on the flip side when he is around the Gentiles. Those outside the law. He became, he says, I became as one, verse 21, as one outside the law. Not that I was outside the law of God because I'm under the law of Christ. And when you're under the law of Christ, you're free, but you're free to do what? To live your life in service of others that you might win them to Christ. That I might win those outside the law. Verse 22. To the weak, I became weak. We saw a few, uh, about a month ago, we saw in the earlier writings what it meant to be weak. That was someone who was actually technically free, according to scriptures, free in Christ to participate in certain activities. Yet they did not feel free because of their conscience, because of their upbringing. And because of their conscience and their upbringing, they were not comfortable doing those things. Paul said back then, that's the weaker brother. And it would be sin for you to come in and tell them, you need to be free in Christ. He says, no, your freedom in Christ is to sacrifice your freedoms so that they may come to know Christ. As I wrote this, this was a little phrase that stuck with me. I said, oh, that's good. Don't offend that you might win. Let's repeat that. Don't offend that you might win. Say that again with me. Don't offend that you might win. That's what freedom in Christ means. You are free to not offend that you might win them to Christ. Verse 21, or excuse me. So in 21 through 23, Paul says, my priority, my reward 
is that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Did you hear that? There's his reward. He doesn't do it out of obligation. He doesn't do it out of duty. He doesn't do it just out of pure sacrifice. He's not filled with resentment. I can't take a pay. I can't eat what I want to eat. I can't live where I want to live. He just says, it's my reward. I get to share in the blessings of them coming to know Christ. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced opening your mouth and saying, Christ's mercy is greater than your sin? And them going, wait, what now? Yeah, and having the privilege of, would you like to trust Christ and have your sin cleansed by the mercies of Christ? And watching that life transformed and watching their marriage transformed and watching their family reunited and reconciled and watching a generation have hope and knowing they are eternally secure in Christ. What a privilege. What a reward. How long have you been a beneficiary of God's grace? Think about it in your mind. Don't say it out loud, but literally think about it. I was saved, for me, it was about seven or eight years old. I'm going to be 50 next month in February. So 42 or three years, I have benefited from the extraordinarily extravagant grace of God. What about you? How many years? Have you ever shared that with anyone? Wow. Paul says there is no greater reward. Paul's priority is the reward of seeing people come to know Christ. And it is so worth it to him that his paycheck isn't more important. His freedoms not more important. If I have to sacrifice those things to see and taste and experience the great privilege of someone coming to know Christ through me, then I'll do it. I'll work a second job if that's what it takes. Is that the same reward driving your life? Paul's rights, Paul's reward, and now the analogy of Paul's race. In this analogy, he drives home, he challenges us of how we should live the Christian life in 2020. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners are running? Everyone's running, okay? That's not a major accomplishment in a race. Your goal should not be to get a participation award in the race. But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Run the Christian life like you mean it. Don't just show up and be an also ran. Show up and do it in such a way that you give it all you got to win the race. 
Paul says, that's what I want you to do in 2020. I don't want you to just run it. I want you to run it to win it. Be in it to win it. What a great challenge for us. This is, this is a great swift kick in the pants from Paul. This is the halftime speech that Clemson got last night. Is something's got to change if you want to win this game. If you want to run, if you want your life to be significant, if you want to experience the thrill of seeing someone come to know Christ through your weak, frail words, something's got to change. Let's, let's look at three categories of potential categories for you to make some New Year's resolutions, to make some changes, to be in this Christian life, to run the, way, the race to win it. They come from verses 25 through 27. Verse 25, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are living for an imperishable wreath. Exercise self-control. So category number one for your New Year's resolutions, number one, exercise self-control for the sake of the gospel. What is self-control? Self-control is not doing some things you want to do, right? If you're going to run a race in 2020, you say, I'm going to run a marathon, or let's be more realistic, I'm going to run a 5K, right? We've got some of you guys out there running ultras and all that. That's fine. Y'all are just a whole other level, all right? What do you got to do? Self-control. You can't just show up race day and be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to win this thing. I've been eating cheeseburgers because I like cheeseburgers. I've been eating chicken wings. It doesn't matter what it is. If you don't show up to the race having exercised self-control, you are not going to win the race. So the, the resolutions under the category of exercise and self-control, what is it that you need to restrain desires that will compete or hinder your ability to win people to Christ. Self-control. Very practical. Next verse, 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating in the air. Can you imagine a runner coming up to the race? And, and the race is all marked out, and they just say, ready, set, go. They've had all the self-control in the world. They show up for the race, and they're just running off the track, going anywhere they want. They're not going to win the race. You've got to pay attention. You've got to stay focused. A boxer just walking around the ring and just punching. Man, he's got good form. Problem is, he's not touching anybody. He's not focused. So, so number two, stay focused for the sake of the gospel. What has captivated your focus? When you wake up every day and you're like, today I'm going to do this and, and here's my to-do list and here's my budget and here's my, my calendar and here's my plan and here's my priorities. Is any of it focused on you leading one person to Christ this year? Any of it. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul shows up into Corinth, preaches, let's just say he preached a powerful sermon. People are like, wow. And then everybody starts going, yeah, but have you seen this dude's life? 
this dude's sick. He's totally disqualified his message ethically. Be disciplined. This is number three. Be disciplined for the sake of the gospel. Whereas self-control is not doing things you want to do. You're controlling yourself. Being disciplined is forcing yourself to do things you don't want to do. Get up earlier. Don't do this and don't do that. Put upon yourself restrictions and requirements. Set goals. And then... Get yourself accountability partner. How many of you are going to run a marathon at the end of the year? You got a great plan. You got all the ideas in the world, and you got nobody helping you train. It's not going to happen. I can tell you from 50 years of experience, it ain't going to happen. Every year, I'm going to work out more. If I don't have guys calling me or meeting me, inviting me, showing up at my office, saying, "Come on, let's go," it ain't going to happen. This holidays, last three weeks, zero workouts. Why? Because they've all been out of town. I don't have it in me unless someone's going, hey, let's go work out. I'm like, okay, let's go. That sounds fun. You got to have people in your life that are helping you discipline yourself. So three categories of New Year's resolutions, self-control, focus, and discipline. Under focus, write this question. What has captured your heart? Is it comfort? Is it selfishness? Is it greed? Is it pride? Is it status? What has so captured your heart that is it, is it money, retirement? Is it, what is it? Possessions? What has so captured your heart? It is the focus of everything you do. You are structuring your life, your calendar, your priorities, your budget, everything around that. And then repent. And set your affections on the Lord. Ask God. Tell God. I need you to captivate my heart. Remind me of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind me of my sin. And how much sin there is. And then remind me. Your mercies are more. And let that captivate your heart once again. Ask God for help. Self-control. Ask this question. Where do I need to say no that someone else might say yes to the gospel? Discipline. What goals do I need to set? Very practical. Set goals. And then... Who will I gather around me to encourage me and hold me accountable for those goals? And then what are the steps towards those goals? Maybe it's the goal of spending 15 minutes each morning with Jesus. Maybe it's the goal of, I want to make one new friend this year who doesn't know Jesus. One friend who does not know Jesus as Savior. Or maybe it's a goal, I'm going to tell one person every week about the people at my church that I love so much and see where that leads. I don't know what the goals are for you, but set the goals, share it with your community group, share it with your friends, ask them to hold you accountable, ask them to encourage you, ask them how you can hold them accountable, encourage them. 
and then pray and stay on track. Run the race for which you were saved. Why didn't God save you and then beam you up immediately? Why does he leave you here to deal with all this mess? It's so that you will talk about Jesus. Is that what you're focused on? I pray it'll be what we focus on this year. Lord, by your grace, with your help, much needed help, Lord. Lord, we don't want to do this with begrudging duty. We want to be captivated once again of the glories of God in Christ and the salvation that is ours in Christ that we don't deserve and be so enamored with the realities that are ours because of Christ that all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places are for me a dirty, rotten scoundrel because of Jesus' death on the cross and I'm trusting solely in him and his righteousness. May that so overwhelm me and those who know Christ that it becomes our great reward to say to others, you can know this too. You can experience the mercies of God through Jesus. And may we then have the spirit-empowered conviction and self-control and discipline to run the race that we might see people come to know Christ. Lord, we need you to work that in us and through us. Please begin now as we sing to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.